Okay, let's do respiratory. And you've had most, if not all, of this already with our little friend, Peso. He's not little, actually. He's bigger than me. Okay. A lot better looking, too, right? Yeah. Really? I like that. Wow. I'm blushing. Actually, I was baiting you for that. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say that. But oh, that's cool. That was spontaneous, too. That was really, really good. I have to call, tell my wife when she calls. I say, I'm married. <laughs> All right. God, that was nice. Okay. Now, you've had this stuff, but, but we'll just kind of do it a little bit again. And then when we get to restrictive and obstructive lung disease, I'll kind of give you a snippet that will remind you about the pulmonary function test that one would expect um, during those things. So don't worry, we'll do a little bit of that. We've done blood gases, so we'll do the pulmonary function test when they come up. This is not big A, big A, uh, uh, as we see as we see it over, over here. It's not PACO. This is a stupid slide. You do have to know about the AA gradient, guys. You have to, have to know how to calculate it. Okay, sometimes they'll give you all the information that you need, and oftentimes the whole question is based on whether you calculated the A gradient or not. Basically, remember, the alveolar oxygen and the arterial PO2 are never the same. So the difference between those two is called the alveolar arterial gradient, and there's reasons for it that Tass will mention. First of all, uh, ventilation and perfusion are not evenly matched in the lungs, as you know. Remember, ventilation is better when you're standing up in the apex than perfusion, whereas uh, perfusion is better than ventilation uh, in the lower lobe. See, that explains why almost all pulmonary infarctions are in the lower lobe, because perfusion is greater than ventilation in the lower lobes. And it explains why reactivation TB is in the apex, because it's a strict aerobe and it needs as much oxygen as possible. So that's very important stuff that he taught you about that. Okay, so normally the alveolar oxygen is 100, and normally the arterial PO2 is 95, so normally the gradient is only about 5 millimeters of mercury. As you get older, that, that gradient expands a little bit, but not that much. Most people use as their upper limit of normal, in other words, setting it for very high specificity, 30 millimeters of mercury. If you have an AA gradient greater than 30 millimeters of mercury, you clearly and unequivocally have a problem because that's set for very, very high specificity. Another term, positive predictive value, okay? You truly have something wrong. So it's set for very, very high specificity. 30 is probably the magic number to remember. Now, the concept is very easy, and that is you would expect the gradient between the alveoli oxygen and the arterial oxygen to be greater if you have primary lung disease. I mean, really, I mean, that's it. Okay, so you already know those things that would do it, because we talked about them already. Ventilation defects, okay, wouldn't that produce hypoxemia, yes or no? Certainly, so wouldn't that prolong the gradient? Sure, if you're dropping the PO2 and you're subtracting, uh, you know, there'd be a greater difference between the two. If you have a perfusion defect, wouldn't that increase the AA gradient? Absolutely, okay? 
uh, pulmonary embolus. If you had a diffusion defect, wouldn't that, wouldn't that uh, 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 increase the gradient? Certainly. But what if I had depression of my respiratory center by barbiturates? Would that increase my AA gradient? No. So the beauty of the AA gradient is that it tells you in patients that have hypoxemia whether the hypoxemia is related to something wrong in your lungs, ventilation, perfusion, or diffusion defect, versus something outside your lungs that's causing the hypoxemia. Now, what are we talking about? Respiratory acidosis. Because if you have respiratory acidosis, then what automatically happens to your PO2? It goes down. And as you know, you can have respiratory acidosis and pulmonary problems, right? Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But you can also have respiratory acidosis because you depress the respiratory center. Remember, you obstruct the upper airways with, let's say, epiglottitis, laryngotracheal bronchitis, cathode coronary, where you paralyze the muscles of respiration, you know, Guillain-Barre, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, whatever, okay? Those are all going to produce respiratory acidosis, hypoxemia, but the AA gradient will be normal. See, that's why that's important to know that. So always, when they're giving you a question that's dealing with AA gradient, always calculate it. If it's prolonged, then you know there's something wrong in the lungs. If it's normal, then you know there's something outside the lungs that's causing it respiratory center depression, upper airway obstruction, or paralysis of the diaphragm. Very important. There's a couple things you should always calculate. Anion gap should always be calculated with electrolytes, and AA gradient should always be calculated um, when you get blood gases. Very simple calculation. All you have to do is calculate the alveolar oxygen. So we can do that right now. Right now, what we're breathing, what are we breathing? We're breathing 21% oxygen, so it's 0.21 times... 713. Now, it's 713 because you have to subtract water vapor from 760. You multiply 0.21 times 713, that's 150. Okay, minus the PCO2, and that's given to you in a blood gas. Okay? Divided by 0.8, which is the respiratory quotient. So the normal PCO2 is 40. So 0.8 into 40 is 50. So what's 150 minus 50? 100. Okay? So now that you've calculated the alveolar oxygen, you should just subtract from it the measured arterial PO2, voila, got the AA gradient. Okay, so it's very, very, very simple to do, and it gives you incredible amounts of information when you're working up hypoxemia. And they know that, and that's why they ask you questions relative to it. I remember even seeing a sample question on that exact concept. All right. Now I'll throw about some upper airway diseases. Nasal polyps. Very interesting. It's about three different types of nasal polyps. The most common is an allergic polyp. But guys, never think of a polyp in the nose of a kid that's allergic as being an allergic polyp. No, 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 no. Allergic polyps develop in adults that have long-term allergies and allergic rhinitis. You don't see allergic polyps in kids. As a matter of fact, the board question was that a four or five-year-old child had a nasal polyp in their nose what was, of course it was in their nose because it's a nasal polyp, uh, they said, what was your first step in management of the patient? The answer was sweat test. Because if you have a polyp in the nose of a kid, they have cystic fibrosis. Okay, so any child with a polyp in the nose needs a sweat test. It's not an allergic polyp. They don't need RAS testing, you know, looking for, 
not, not on the skin, looking for allergens in the blood and all that stuff. No, 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 no. They need a sweat test. That was the question. Child had nasal polyp. They probably mentioned problems with, uh, you know, respiratory infections. They would have to do that. I'd say, you know, what's your first step in management? The answer is a sweat test because they'll have cystic fibrosis. Okay, so remember that one. Uh, allergic polyps, allergic polyp, no problem there. And then remember triad asthma. Triad asthma is where you take an aspirin or nonsteroidal. Remember, aspirin is a type of nonsteroidal. They get uh, asthma, okay, and they have nasal polyps. Now, this one's kind of unfair, guys, and so we have to play their game by spilling the beans on how to answer the question because they don't tell you that the patient took aspirin and they don't tell you that they have a polyp. And somehow, you have to figure out that aspirin's responsible. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Here's how they do it. Okay? It's always a woman. I'm not making it. It's always, they always pick a woman because pain, in general, is more common in women than men. Okay? So they'll say the patient has headaches, chronic headaches. They'll say 35-year-old woman with chronic headaches. Or they can pick another one, uh, fibromyalgia. Very, very, very common uh, cause of pain uh, in women predominantly. Fibromyalgia, where they have all these pressure points of pain. Some chronic pain syndrome woman. They do not tell you she's on medication. And they'll say that she develops occasional bouts of asthma. And then they'll say the mechanism of this patient's asthma is. The answer is she's taking nonsteroidal. So look at all the stuff they left out. They left out the polyp in the nose. They left out the fact that, that she was taking any medication. But I think it's fair to say that if someone has chronic pain, they're probably taking some medication, which is usually a nonsteroidal and or aspirin, Motrin or aspirin itself. So I think it's a reasonable assumption. And then they're saying that the patient has asthma. I, I think you can work your way into that. I really do. But that's the way they do it. Here's another one that you have to make an assumption on. These idiots on the boards think that any male that's well-built is on anabolic steroids. I, I swear to God, I will tell you, when we go through liver and GI, you won't believe the things that you have to assume. You won't believe it. Okay, so they'll talk about a football player, they'll talk about a wrestler, and they'll talk about something that happens. You know, they get intraperitoneal hemorrhage. You have to assume they're on anabolic steroids. Anabolic steroids produce benign liver cell adenomas, which have a tendency of rupturing. Boom, there you go. All kinds of things you have to assume. Okay, so remember, any, any professional football player, any wrestler that they mention in any of these uh, questions they give you, they're on anabolics. That's probably what the answer is going to be. Okay, right there. Or any person with a chronic pain syndrome of any kind, male or female, that develops asthma, it's related to someone taking asthma, producing it. Now, you know how it works, don't you? What will aspirin or non-steroidals block? Cyclooxygenase. So, therefore, arachidonic acid can't form prostaglandins, but that leaves the whole lipoxygenase pathway open, doesn't it? And some people are very super sensitive to that. And so we have our little friends LTC, D, and E4 being formed, and those are potent bronchoconstrictors. Okay, and that's the reason why they develop asthma. It is not a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. That is a chemical-mediated, non-type 1 hypersensitivity type of asthma. Okay, so chronic pain, asthma, the reason for it is they have aspirin sensitivity. Okay, that's the answer to that one. So we got the polyp thing out. We got our cystic fibrosis thing out. Okay, laryngeal carcinoma, I'll show you a picture of momentarily. 
like now. <laughs> okay. Now, when I show this picture to second-year medical students, they're entranced with this thing right over here. They think maybe this is the pathology. No, that is a piece of dirt on the slide. Okay. And then, uh, students are amazing because they think that you're always trying to fool them. You're always trying to fool them. In reality, I'm not. Okay? Nor are they on the boards with pictures. You know, a lot of times I always watch students when I give exams and I put a picture up. I watch where their eyes are. Most of the time they're over here, sometimes up here, sometimes looking at the person next to them. Okay? But they're never where the pathology is. Guys, when you take a picture of a person, is the head in the picture? Yes or no? Okay. All right. So they try most of the time to put what it is you really, really want to emphasize roughly in the middle of the slide. So that's where you look. You don't look here. You don't look there. You don't look down there. And you don't look down there. Look somewhere in the middle. That's where the pathology is. Really? Do it here. What's in the middle? That. <laughs> that's in the middle. It's so fast. I know. But what does that look like? It looks like a mouse. I think this part of the mouse. That small? I don't think so. But, but, but wait a minute. It's got little ears and this tail. But it's too small. Yeah, is it a mini mouse? No. All right. Not only that, they give you the vocal cords to compare this to. You see something there? And it's obliterated on that side. Oh, those were the vocal cords? See, some of you would say, yes. <laughs> so, let's make sure you got your anatomy. What's that? A tongue? No, that's the epiglottis. Good Lord in heaven. Okay. So, that's true. That's not the tongue, which most of you thought. Okay. Then what's that? The false vocal cord. What's this little space in between? The commissure. What's this over here? The true vocal cord. So, the true is not before the false. False is first. Then it's the commissure, then that's the true vocal cord. The false vocal cord up is lined by squamous epithelium. The true vocal cord down is lined by ciliated pseudostratified columnar epithelium. Now, this is laryngeal carcinoma, most common cause smoking. But they're into a concept, and that's synergism. Another, the second most common cause of squamous carcinoma larynx is alcohol. So, number one, smoking. Number two is alcohol. Well, what if you did both? then you would develop, have a much greater chance of developing it. Do you understand the concept of that? That's called synergism. And they're into that. You know what I would do with this? I would say the lesion represented in this slide is laryngectomy specimen. Okay? With the, which of the following would have been the greatest risk factors for the lesion represented in this slide? And then I would have A, smoker. B, alcoholic. C, smoker and alcoholic. D, I don't know, some other thing. Uh, 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 C? No. I know the answer C. I'm thinking of DNA. <laughs> Parachutist. Okay, whatever. Okay? So what's the answer? Is it A? Oh, yeah, that can produce cancer. Is that the answer? No. Is it alcohol B? No. How about alcohol and aspirin? Yes, because both of them can do it by themselves, but together, Greater chance. That's true for any squamous cancer from the esophagus to the mouth to the larynx. Anyone. Smoking is the most common cause of squamous cancers in the mouth and upper esophagus as well as the larynx. And alcohol can do the same thing. So if you're a smoker, 
and a drinker, you literally double your risk. So that's a very important concept. Most common symptom associated with this is hoarseness of the throat. Okay. So what's that? The epiglottis. And what can infect it? Hemophilus influenza. And what kind of symptom would you have? Inspiratory strider. Okay, now, now, kid, three months, dies. I even hate to say that. And there's inflammation right down here in the trachea. And this kid had an inspiratory type of strider. Diagnosis, croup, organism, parainfluenza. Very good. So it's a tracheal inflammation and parainfluenza, whereas epiglottitis is over here. Either one of them produces upper airway obstruction. Good. Okay, hyaline membrane disease. You can see why they call it hyaline membrane. Remember we said that anything that's got a lot of pink in it, what do we use the term? Hyaline. Hyaline arteriolosclerosis. Hyaline membrane disease. Another name, respiratory distress syndrome. Now, what is all this crap? That's collapsed alveoli. Because the key to understanding respiratory distress syndrome is massive atelectasis. So what's atelectasis mean? Collapse of airways. Now, why did these airways throughout both lungs collapse? Talk to me. No surfactant. Ooh. Ooh. Give me a name for surfactant. Lecithin. Give me another name. Phosphatidylcholine. Give me another one. Phosphatidylglycerol. They're all surfactant. So, you're still not there yet. So what? So you're deficient in surfactant. Why would that cause atelectasis? Well, the answer is collapsing pressure in the airways is equal to surface tension in the numerator divided by the radius of whatever the airway is in the denominator. Okay, so collapsing pressure is equal to surface tension by the radius of that of the airway in the denominator. Okay, so on expiration, what happens to the caliber of the airways normally? It's smaller, right? Because you have a positive interest. So if you're decreasing the radius, then what would that do to collapsing pressure? Increase it. So therefore, on expiration, in all of us, why don't we have massive atelectasis of all of our airways on expiration? Okay? Now think about it. What do we have that keeps them open on expiration? Well, what would we have to do to reduce collapsing pressure according to the formula? Collapsing pressure equals surface tension divided by radius. The radius is decreased. That increases collapsing pressure. So what do we need to have? We need to do what? Decrease what? Surface tension. So what do you think surfactant does? It decreases surface tension. You might as well know why rather than just memorize it. It decreases surface tension. That's what it does. And by doing that, it keeps your airways open on expiration, so you don't have atelectasis. Now, we know the three causes of respiratory distress syndrome are prematurity, because as you know, surfactant begins synthesis uh, early on, but it peaks at around the 32nd to 35th week, and so if you're born a little bit before that time, you don't have enough surfactant, and so you really run a significant risk, that little baby, for developing respiratory distress syndrome. Now, sometimes you have no choice. You've got to deliver that baby, otherwise they're going to die. And there's something you can do to mommy to make sure that that baby will have a little bit more surfactant. What are they going to do? They're going to give mommy glucocorticoids. Because glucocorticoids stimulate surfactant synthesis. That's on boards. 
But there was another question on boards that was very, very tricky. They were talking about things that increased surfactant, and everyone was looking for cortisol or glucocorticoids, and it wasn't there. <laughs> I mean, they looked on different pages, and looked underneath, and looked back. It wasn't there. And so they wrote it in. A lot of them put F, you know, surfactant. It must have made a mistake. No, they wanted to see if you knew other causes that increase surfactant. And the answer is thyroxin. Thyroid hormone increases surfactant. If you want another one, prolactin does too. That's not in the notes, but I just learned that one the other day. The answer was thyroxin, also stimulates. Now, does that mean then you give mommy thyroxin, okay, uh, to before to before you deliver the baby? No. You want to give the mommy uh, hyperthyroidism and the baby hyperthyroidism? No. You give her cortisol or glucocorticoids. Okay? That's that. So prematurity is an easy one. Diabetes. Mommy is a diabetic or, remember, it's gestational diabetes, a diabetic that's pregnant. Mm, no, 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 no. Gestational diabetes is a woman who is not diabetic when she's not pregnant, and then she gets pregnant and then develops glucose intolerance. That's gestational diabetes. Now, if a diabetic gets pregnant, you don't call that gestational diabetes. It's a diabetic that got pregnant. <laughs> oh, that's a difficult concept. <laughs> well, okay. So let's continue on here. Now... So what? Why is it so important that a woman in her pregnancy has good glycemic control? Because if she has hyperglycemia, so does the baby. And the baby has hyperglycemia, that's a stimulus for insulin release in its prep from its pancreas. And what does insulin do to surfactant synthesis? It decreases it. That's right. So then that baby's at great risk. C-section. Okay? Why? Would C-sections produce respiratory distress syndrome? Stress is missing. <laughs> See, there's something, there's a benefit to being delivered vaginally. It's a good lesson for the newborn coming out too, actually. Life is stressful. So there's nothing better than getting your head and body squeezed into an oblivion before you come out. <laughs> See, that's why many babies who, who go through this thing and they come out try to go back in. Okay. Because they know, God, if it's going to be worse out here, I'd rather go back to where I was. I had a good hot tub. I was able to swim, kick my legs around. Why not go back? And not only that, my head feels like a cone. Okay, that's why all the... All the hats that they give the newborns are shaped like this, okay, because they fit the mold of the head. Okay. So when you deliver by C-section and then <clears throat> you pull a kid out and the kid has a round head, the kid has not been stressed, therefore ACTH and cortisol are not increased, therefore they're not making surfactant, as opposed to the kid that's getting annihilated by squeezing, okay, releasing all that cortisol. So a lot of surfactant being made on that way out. Okay, so C-section predisposes to uh, respiratory distress syndrome as well. Now, there's a Goyon maneuver for C-sections, okay? And that, is, uh, and that is don't separate the cord away from the baby. Just grab the cord and hang the baby like this. And go like, <laughs> you kind of bounce him up a little bit like this. Now, you do this in a room with nobody there. <laughs> 
and it stresses them a little bit, okay? And they like it, especially male babies. Male babies love to be manhandled. Now, little girl babies, they're really going to cry. You know, male babies, you know, they love it. Smile. You do that to a little baby girl, they go absolutely crazy. Okay, they don't like that stuff. I know this because I've tried it on both. Okay, and, and whatever. Now, those are the three main causes of this. Now, another question is, why are babies of women that have poor glycemic control big? Macrosomia. Well, that's biochemistry. So we need to know why that is. Well, the answer is this. Thinking. Okay. Now, remember, the baby's insulin is increased to keep the glucose down. Is that correct? Okay. What does insulin do to fat storage? It increases it. Okay, you'll learn that in biochemistry. Uh, it increases the storage of triglyceride in the adipose. Where is most of your adipose located? Centrally. So one of the reasons why they have macrosomia is that insulin stimulates triglyceride synthesis and deposition in fat. So they are a little fatter. Two, what does insulin do to amino acids? Increases the uptake in muscles, kind of like growth hormone. And so it increases muscle mass too. So the reason for macrosomia, why they're 10 pounds and over, is that they have an increase in adipose and an increase in muscle mass due to insulin. This also explains why they frequently get hypoglycemia when they're born. Because it's mommy's hyperglycemia that's coming into the baby, causing the baby to release insulin. So the moment you deliver that baby and cut the cord, it's got all this insulin and there's no more increase in glucose, <clears throat> glucose goes down and you can end up with hypoglycemia. So all of those things are, are important things to remember. Okay. Now remember, we already talked about the oxygen, uh, uh, superoxide free radical uh, damage, producing uh, retinopathy, prematurity and blindness, and bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Why would it be that babies that have respiratory distress syndrome commonly have patent ductus arteriosus? Because they have hypoxemia, guys. Remember, when they, when they take a breath, when a normal baby takes a breath, that starts the process going for functional closure of the ductus. But if they have hypoxemia after they're born, then it doesn't. It remains open. So they very commonly have machinery murmurs as well uh, in these babies. The hyaline membranes, if you're interested, uh, the hyaline membranes are due to degeneration of the type 2 pneumocytes and a little bit of leakage of fibrinogen and it congeals to produce these membranes. But they could look, you could look at this, they can give you a classic history for respiratory distress syndrome, and then they're gonna ask you a question, the mechanism, which of the following is the pathogenesis of the hypoxemia in this baby? And remember, this is a massive perfusion defect, ventilation defect, or diffusion defect, what is it? Ventilation defect, everything's collapsing, okay? You still have perfusion, okay? And so what's the main thing that's happening when you have a massive ventilation defect? Is it a dead space problem or is it a shunt problem? Uh, it's a shunt problem. They have massive intrapulmonary shunting. So they can, you can get all of this stuff and you know the answer is respiratory distress and all of a sudden they're asking about the pathogenesis of the hypoxemia. You say, and you write in respiratory distress as if the idiots are going to read your answer. No, you're writing on the computer screen, okay? No. They're asking about mechanisms. They already know that you're supposed to know it's respiratory distress syndrome. There's something else about it. 
Okay, and so it's massive intrapulmonary shunting. Now, the way they treat this is PEEP therapy, positive end expiratory pressure, because these airways are collapsed, and you've got to get oxygen into them and surfactant, which is synthesized. So what happens is you put them up to a respirator when they're getting oxygen, and you set it for uh, a positive end expiratory pressure. Right at the end of expiration, you puff in some pressure, and that keeps the airways open on expiration so that you can keep oxygen in them. That's the purpose of that. And then they put in a little bit of surfactant, and so they get pretty good, pretty good uh, um, recovery rates in hyaline membrane disease now. So that's cool. All right. Oh, yeah, let me do this. This picture's on boards, guys. I want you to look at it. This is a type 2 pneumocyte, okay? That's the nucleus. These are lamellar bodies, L-A-M-E-L-L-E-R, lamellar bodies. Don't they look kind of like an onion cut in cross-section? Don't they kind of look like hyperplastic arteriolosclerosis kind of concentric types of things? Well, these lamellar bodies contain surfactant. Okay, and this would identify this as a type 2 pneumocyte. They commonly do EM pictures of the lung, uh, with a, usually with an alveolar macrophage in it. So you already know what a macrophage looks like. You know, a cell has got all these different uh, junk in the cytoplasm. Now you know what a type 2 pneumocyte looks like. It's got these lamellar bodies in them. And they can ask, obviously, a great number of questions related to this. This is the repair cell, remember, of the lung. It's also the one that um, synthesizes surfactant. Okay? Okay, now in terms of ARDS, adult respiratory distress syndrome, essentially uh, it's the same that's respiratory distress syndrome in terms of pathophys, but it's usually neutrophil-related injury. It's not that you're not making surfactant because you have, you're too premature or you have much, too much insulin, because there wasn't any inflammation in that slide at all, just a bunch of collapsed alveoli. Now, most common cause of ARDS is septic shock. But isn't this interesting? We've got a lot of most common things. So the most common cause of septic shock was E. coli due to sepsis from an indwelling catheter. We said that the most common cause of DIC is septic shock. And now we're saying that the most common cause of ARDS is septic shock. Mm -hmm. Because anyone that's ever been in an ICU knows that when you come in with septic shock, within 24 hours they're having dysmere, that's their ARDS, and within 48 hours they're bleeding out of every orifice, that's your DIC. That is so common, it's unbelievable. So first day, it's a septic shock. The second day, you're in ARDS. And the third day, you're in DIC. The fourth day, you are in a, you know what's happened on the fourth day. You've got a lily on your chest, okay? Because that's three bad things. Septic shock, ARDS, and DIC. Man, okay, you bring the lily in, don't put it on there. Just stick it on their chest because that's it, okay? That is just bad. All right. Not that that's funny. But that's true. So interesting, that, that, that sequence. Very, very important that you remember about septic shock. Well, whatever it is, what happens is, is that neutrophils uh, uh, will get into the lung in septic shock, okay? And what do they do is they start destroying all the cells in the lung, the type 1 pneumocytes, the type 2 pneumocytes. And so it automatically surfactant goes down, see? And so then you get collapse, massive atelectasis. But it's neutrophil-related. The neutrophils are destroying the type 2 pneumocytes, okay? And that's why they get it. The reason why they get 
the hyaline membranes in ARDS is because the neutrophils have to get into the lungs by going through the pulmonary capillaries. And so they put holes in them as they get out of the bloodstream and get into the lungs. So that's why they use the term leaky capillary syndrome. They commonly use that term. And have a lot of protein and fibrinogen and crap like that get in there and they produce hyaline membranes. So you can actually see hyaline membranes in ARDS. Okay, and you'll have massive collapse, and so the major pathophysiology is intrapulmonary shunting. So it's the same thing as RDS, except it's neutrophil-related. That's pretty much it for ARDS. Very bad prognosis in that. Okay, now here's where we have some differences of opinion, apparently, in certain countries compared to this country, and that is in pneumothorax. Okay. Now, these arrows are pointing to the leading edge of a collapsed lung. Or is it collapsed? We'll see. So we have spontaneous pneumothorax and tension. Okay. Now the most common cause of spontaneous pneumothorax is a ruptured subpleural bleb. So you have the pleura, and right underneath it is this little bleb, this little air pocket, and it ruptures, and there's a hole in the pleura. Now, what's going to happen if there's a hole in the pleura? That part of the lung is going to collapse. Why? Because what's keeping it expanded is the negative intrathoracic pressure. Negative intrathoracic pressure keeps your lungs expanded. You Tipasso told you that. So when you put a hole, a hole in the pleura, then the atmospheric pressure is not negative. It's the same as the air you're breathing. Okay? And so there's nothing to hold it open. So it collapses. Now listen, guys. When parts of the lung collapse, there are things that are going to take up the slack. And that one of them is the diaphragm. So if you collapse a part of the lung, the diaphragm is going to go up on that side to take up the space that's been left. Not only that, if there's a collapse over here, the trachea is not going to go to the opposite side like some of you think. The trachea is going to go to the side where there's space. So you have tracheal deviation to the side of the collapse. And the diaphragm is up. That's a spontaneous pneumothorax. Okay? Most commonly, subfloral blood. Usually tall males, and for some reason, uh, uh, they have these bleds in the, uh, uh, in the apex, and they rupture, and they get this disease. A lot of times you can also get it uh, in um, scuba divers. Very commonly get pneumothoraxes too. They come up too quickly and they can get ruptures of these bleds. Now, tension pneumothorax. Here's the big one. Tension pneumothorax, guys, is totally different than a spontaneous pneumothorax. A tension pneumothorax is most commonly due to knife injuries uh, into the lung. Or as was in Three, Three Kingdoms or whatever, that Three King movie with our little friend, what's his name? George Clooney, it was a gunshot wound with some shrapnel. Now here's, how many of you fill your tires up with air? You don't, that's why you're having problems with your car. Okay? <laughs> okay, now when you fill a tire up with air, you like the air to go in, but not to come out. Is that correct? Good, that's what attention pneumothorax is. Because uh, in tension pneumothorax, there's a tear of the pleura that's a flap. Flap. So when you breathe in, the flap goes up, and the air goes into the pleural cavity, and on expiration, it closes. And so the air stays in the pleural cavity. 
So every time you breathe, the flap goes up, the air stays in there, and on expiration it closes. So every breath you take, you're increasing and increasing and increasing the pressure in the pleural cavity. The lung hasn't collapsed, but then that increase in pressure starts pushing the lung and the mediastinum over to the other side. And when it pushes it, it's compressing the lung and it's producing compression atelectasis. It's not that it's, 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 it's deflated because of a hole. There isn't a hole. It's a tear that when the air went in, it went up like this, and the air went into the pleural cavity and it shut on expiration. And that positive pleural pressure is pushing everything over to the other side. And of course, that's going to push on the thin wall vena cava, superior vena cava, the thin wall right ventricle and right atrium. So you're going to compromise blood return and breathing, medical emergency. Even George Clooney knew that in the movie. So what did he do? He took this trocar with a three with a stopcock and he jammed it into here and he opened up the stopcock and it let all that air out. You can actually hear it. Relieved it. So the lung re-expanded. They said, every time that you feel like you can't breathe, just open the stop clock up. And it relieved the positive pressure. That's totally different than a spontaneous pneumothorax. So tension pneumothorax is like filling your, filling your tire up with air. Okay? The air can go in, but it can't come out. What's the air going into? Your pleural cavity. And it can't get out of there, so it keeps on building up, building up, building up, building up, and it starts pushing everything over to the other side. That's the tension pneumothorax. And that's actually what's happening here, okay? This, uh, this is lung over here. Notice the diaphragm is down. If you have a positive intrathoracic pressure, guys, the diaphragm's not going to go up. That's a spontaneous pneumothorax. The diaphragm is going to be pushed down. And that's down, buddy. Because here it is on this side, buddy. And there it is on that side, buddy. It's going down, buddy. Okay? That's the difference between a spontaneous and a tension pneumothorax. Commonly misunderstood for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. Pneumonia. How many of you ever had pneumonia? Nobody. That's good. You're all healthy. That's wonderful. <laughs> I guess it must be that your arms are so heavy that you can't lift them up. Okay. Well, there's two kinds of pneumonia. Typical and atypical. Okay? Typical is you can wake up in the morning feeling good, and then suddenly you got a 105 temperature productive cough, and you are hurting big time. Atypical is something where you have a, a slow and insidious onset of the pneumonia. You just kind of feel crappy over a couple of days. You're just feeling crappier and crappier and crappier. That's atypical. And we have two other types of pneumonia, community-acquired and nosocomial. Nosocomial doesn't mean that you pick your nose and you get an infection. Okay, nosocomial means that you get it within a hospital where you pick your nose. No. Okay, the organisms are totally different, guys. If anyone were to get a pneumonia here, and it was typical, you have strep pneumonia. If it was atypical, it is mycoplasma pneumonia. But if you were in a hospital and got a pneumonia, it would be the organisms that are in the hospital, which are E. coli, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Nosa, and Stavorius. So that's what it would be one of those three that you get the pneumonia. You're not going to get strep pneumonia in a hospital. You're going to get the organisms that will colonize. You know, one of the dangers of being a doctor 
is being in a hospital. Because when you go in that hospital, it only takes one week in a hospital to get colonized by the bacteria. So you're carrying around E. coli, you're carrying around Pseudomonas, and you're carrying around Staph aureus. No wonder why there's so many stinking uh, wound infections and stuff like that, because we're the ones that transmit the Staph aureus, because we got it from the hospital. And maybe we didn't wash our hands enough. Okay, so nosocomial infections are totally different than uh, community-acquired, which is strep pneumoniae for typical, mycoplasma pneumonia for atypical. Now listen carefully. The reason why, uh, in, in typical pneumonia, why you have a productive cough is because you have exudate pus, you have signs of consolidation in your lung. Well, let me show you a picture so that you understand what I'm talking about. Okay, see these, you've seen this one in a smaller picture. See these little yellow areas? These are all microabscesses. These are areas of consolidation in the lung. Let me show you another one. This is a low bar pneumonia. This is totally a consolidation in the lung. All pus that's in your alveoli is completely causing a consolidation in your lung. So in other words, when you have typical pneumonia, you have pus in the alveoli producing consolidation in that lung. Now, you all know the physical diagnostic findings of lung consolidation, I hope. They are decreased percussion note, yes. They are increased tactile firmitus, yes. Now, what the heck does that mean? That means when a person talks, even right now as, we, as I'm talking, I feel vibrations in my chest, my massive chest, I feel it. Okay, I can feel vibrations a lot bigger than yours because my chest is more massive. Okay, so I feel, I'm just trying to get you to laugh a little bit. So I feel some vibrations in my chest. Now, if I had a consolidation like that, let's say in my left upper lobe, I would have increased tactile fremitus there because it's a consolidation. So it would be much greater when compared to other sides. So increased tactile fremitus equals consolidation. Okay, two, I have an E to A sign. Okay, that's where you are listening to the area of consolidation and the patient says E, not, not you. You're not there listening saying E, E, E and expecting to hear A. Okay, the patient says E and you hear A. Okay, that's called egophony. That's a sign of consolidation. Then there's whispered pectoriloquy. What does that mean? You whisper, one, two, three, one, two, three. No. The patient whispers one, two, three, while you're listening with your stethoscope and you hear it loud as a bell. It's an area of consolidation. So decreased percussion, increased tactile firmness, firmness egophony, pectoriloquy equals what? Consolidation. Good. What if there was a pleural effusion overlying the lung? The only thing you would have is decreased percussion. Forget all the other stuff. That was on board, separating a pleural effusion from a, from a pneumonia. Now, atypical pneumonias, guys, do not have productive cough like typical pneumonias. They don't have as high a temperature either. The reason why is they're interstitial pneumonias. They're inflammation of the interstitium. There is no exudate in the alveoli. That's why you're not coughing up a whole lot. And so that's why you have no signs of consolidation. Okay? And so you're not going to have Increased tactile firmness and E to A signs and, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff with, a, with an atypical pneumonia. There's a major difference there. Guys, they describe all these things in the stem of the question, and you can get the answer to what the patient has just by knowing a physical diagnosis. And boy, they ask it big time. I'm not, I'm not making all this up. They actually have this, this stuff on tests. All right, so let's go back here.
and look at a couple things. Here's the, 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 the most common cause of typical pneumonia in the United States, strep pneumonia. And you better know this because this picture was on many boards. It's a gram-positive diplococcus. Another name is pneumococcus. They even want to know treatment. The treatment is penicillin G. I think any second-year medical student should know how to treat strep pneumonia on pneumonia. So that's fair game on part one. Yes, it is. So this is your most common cause of typical pneumonia. Okay? Mycoplasma pneumonia is the most common cause of atypical pneumonia, followed closely by chlamydia pneumonia. And that's an interstitial pneumonia. Insidious onset, relatively non-productive cough, and no signs of consolidation. That's an atypical pneumonia. Very important that you know this. That's why I'm spending time on it. Okay, we told you this is bronchopneumonia. That would be most commonly due to strep pneumonia. This was community acquired, and it is. And this is a low bar pneumonia here. And if this is in a community, that would be, again, most commonly strep pneumonia. All right. This is what a, a low bar consolidation looks like on a chest X-ray. Okay, so you have all the signs of consolidation in this particular patient. So there's a low bar consolidation right there. This patient had a strep pneumonia and pneumonia. All right, let's give you some, uh, a couple of liners on some of these infections. Now, you should be up on these, actually, because you had micro. So I'll just hit some key things, okay? Rhinovirus, of course, is the most common cause of the common cold. Remember, they're acid labile. For some reason, they think that's important. I never quite understood what that meant. But what it means is you're never going to get a gastroenteritis from a rhinovirus because it gets destroyed by acid in your stomach. I finally figured out what that meant, okay? You're never going to have a vaccine. That was another board question because there's over 100 serotypes of rhinovirus. Okay. You already know about, uh, well, you don't. You know about parainfluenza. Respiratory syncytial virus is the most common cause of bronchiolitis. Now, remember, whenever you inflame small airways, you get what? Wheezing. Wheezing is, always means small airway disease. And that's bronchiolitis is most commonly due to respiratory syncytial virus as well as pneumonia. So pneumonia... And bronchiolitis most commonly uh, in children is respiratory uh, syncytial virus. Influenza, you probably had all there is on that, but remember, uh, they're interested in, on influenza about the antigenic drift and shift and when you need a new vaccine. The way I remember drift versus shift, remember we have hemagglutinins uh, and influenza viruses. They actually help attach the virus to the nasal mucosa. And then we have neuraminidase, they, they, they have, which bores a hole through it. Antigenic drift is kind of like watching somebody in front of you drive, and you see them maybe move into the next lane. That's a drift. That's a minor mutation in one of those two things. Hemagglutin and neuraminidase does not require a new vaccine. But an antigenic shift means you actually change direction completely. That is a major mutation in either neuraminidase or hemagglutin and need a new vaccine. Remember, the vaccine is against what? A, B, and C, or just A? Just A. A is the big one. Good. Okay, so you know that pretty good. Rubiolas, measles, we're not going to mention that. Chlamydia, cytokine, that's the one that people that work with uh, a cytokine birds like parrots, turkeys, stuff like that. Chlamydia pneumonia, we talked about. Chlamydia trachomonas, common board question. Got a little kid. He's born. About a week later, he's wheezing. Big time. Okay. He's got, looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger chest. He's got increased AP diameter. He's got a, a, a tympanitic percussion sound, wheezing all over. No fever. No fever. You notice that his eyes are kind of crusty, so you think he's got a conjunctivitis. Both sides. Remember, this is after a week, which is diagnosis. 
chlamydia trachomonas. And here's how the kid's coughing. You know what they call that? Staccato cough. So when you see that term on the boards, staccato cough, that's, <coughs> that's chlamydia trachomatis pneumonia. Now how did this kid get it? On the way out through an infected cervix on the mommy. Because remember, the most common cause of conjunctivitis in the second week is chlamydia trachomatis. Most common cause overall of conjunctivitis is Inflammation from the erythromycin drops in the eye. But after 48 hours, it's GC. But in the second week, it's chlamydia trachomonas. So they pick it up on the way out, so they get the conjunctivitis, and then also they develop the pneumonia, which affects the small airways. They get wheezing, no fever, and they have that peculiar staccato cough. Guaranteed board question. Okay, we already know about those other ones. We're in about about strep, staph, we don't need to talk about homophilus. Now, pseudomonas. Pseudomonas, remember, is a water-loving bacteria. So we see this in patients in ICUs and CCUs when they're on a respirator. Don't forget that. Very, very important. They're water-loving bacteria. And if they describe someone in an ICU that has a productive cough with green cod discoloration, they're giving away pseudomonas aeruginosa. Klebsiella pneumoniae is famous in the alcoholic. But listen carefully. That's not to say that alcoholics can't get strep pneumonia in pneumonia. So how are you going to know it's Klebsiella versus strep pneumonia? Simple. Here's what they'll say. you got a patient that's an alcoholic that has high spiking fevers, productive cough of mucoid-appearing sputum. That's the tip-off. Mucoid-appearing sputum. Because you know that the capsule of Klebsiella pneumonia is very thick. And so when they say mucoid, they're tipping you off that that's Klebsiella pneumoniae. Okay, and that's how you know it's that versus strep pneumoniae. Okay. They love to cavitate Klebsiella pneumoniae too in the upper lobes, and so it's very frequently confused with TB. Ooh. Okay. So Klebsiella pneumoniae. Nocardia, forget, actinomic, Legionella, big time. Legionella is considered an atypical type of pneumonia, actually. You pretty much get a non-productive cough, you're very, very, very sick. It can kill you. In fact, I was here doing a board review a number of years back, and some people I went to Bermuda came back on one of these cruise ships, and about 10 of them got Legionella, and about three or four of them died. And it was from water coolers. Legionella is another water-loving bacteria, and it's in water coolers that we see it. And also a new one recently, and I believe they're going to see it on boards. You know those mists that they have in grocery stores over the vegetables? Whoa, they found out that that's a common source for Legionella, those mists. And sometimes some restaurants on hot days have that mist blowing over there, keep your nice and cool. What they're doing is throwing off Legionella onto you. <laughs> Isn't that nice of them to do that? Okay. There was one very tricky question on Legionella, guys, very tricky. They talked about a patient that had a classic atypical pneumonia. Knew it was that, by the way, non-productive cough that does. They had low-grade fever. No problem. Then they said the patient had hyponatremia. Woo. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, we go from the obvious mycoplasma pneumonia, then all of a sudden, hyponatremia. Well, that just changed the diagnosis to Legionella. Because Legionella just doesn't infect the lungs, as you know. You can get liver disease. Uh, and you also get interstitial nephritis. So it infects the kidneys, and it knocks off your juxtaglomerular apparatus. 
so that you get low renin levels, low aldosterone levels. If you have low aldosterone levels, are you going to lose salt in your urine? Yep. And are you going to end up with hyponatremia? Yeah. God, Lee, isn't that amazing? That was a part one board exam. That was part one board exam. Part one board exam, something like that. Hyponatremia, Legionella pneumophila. Good Lord in heaven. I guarantee you, most books don't even have that information in it. I had to look it up, and I did find it. Okay, it does produce interstitial nephritis, and it does produce hyporenonemic hypoaldosteronism with hyponatremia. Can you believe that? Well, you know, most people that don't know that are going to obviously get that wrong. Okay, but you guys now know hyponatremia, atypical type of pneumonia presentation, Legionella. It's usually treated with erythromycin, Legionella. Okay, we're going to go through some fungi. Ooh. And then we'll probably add, that'll be it for today. I'm going to go through systemic fungi. Guys, I can't tell you how important this is. Yes, I can. It's important. Okay, I guess I can tell you. <laughs> why can't I tell you? I have no idea why I said that. Okay? But I can tell you. Not only do you have to know them, you have to know how to recognize them. Hmm. So, let's deal with this. Systemic fungi, you know, candida, histo, and all that kind of stuff, all right? Candida, remember, you normally get via indwelling uh, uh, catheters, okay? Usually those that are like subclavian and candida, and you get candida sepsis. I'm not going to talk about candida. Okay, I want us to remember different areas of the country because it's going to help us figure out what the systemic fungus is, okay? Okay. Um, in the, mid, in the Midwest and the Ohio Tennessee Valley area, which is very, very human, histoplasmosis is number one. Wherever there are pigeons, are there pigeons in New York? Are there? Yes. Even though they, they, they brought in peregrine falcons, they haven't killed all the pigeons. What do they have? Cryptococcus. I say pigeon from now on. What do you say? Cryptococcus. Pigeon! All right. Pigeon. All right. Just want to make sure. And this just proved a Pavlovian experiment. Stimulus, pigeon, response, cryptococcus. See that? Okay. <laughs> this is Pavlovian. This is excellent. Okay. Pigeon. All right. Now, histoplasmosis, as I said, is kind of Ohio, Tennessee Valley, Midwest. In other words, where I am from Oklahoma, Tennessee, Ohio. Histo. Histo think starlings. Starlings are those little black birds with the yellow beaks. They carry histoplasmosis. So do bats. And so they very frequently talk about the dude in the Midwest that goes cave exploring. And then he ends up with a non-productive cough. It's histo. But sometimes to screw you up, they use the term spelunkerer. A spelunkerer is an idiot that goes into caves. Okay? <laughs> That's what a spelunker is. If you look in Webster's Dictionary, it says, idiot that goes into caves. <laughs> okay? That's what, that's what the definition of. Sometimes they use big words to try to screw you up, like dysjuicia, lack of taste, zinc deficiency. Okay? Anosmia, lack of smell. Kalman syndrome or zinc deficiency, that kind of stuff. Spelunkerer. That's someone that visits caves. And there's bats in caves, and in the dung of the bat is histo. So cave explorers in the Midwest, Ohio, Tennessee Valley area, uh, bat exposure or starlings, 
think histoplasmosis. Okay. Uh, if you talk about the southeastern United States blastomycosis, that's where blasto is. Blasto produces skin infections and lung infections. Blastomycosis. Let me show you some pictures, and I'll show you some clever, clever, clever ways they ask questions, all of which, of course, are in your notes. Now, if I say southwest, you say coccidiotomycosis. Now, what's considered southwest? New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California. Please look at this slide, please. This is, this is coccidiotomycosis. Okay, and this is what is called a spherial and in that spherical endospores, this exact picture was on board. Here's the history. Listen to this. This is where they asked it. Two, I'm going to give you two histories. One, in the Los Angeles uh, earthquake of 1993, a number of people developed uh, non-productive cough. What was, it? what was the cause? The answer, coccidiotomycosis. Why? Because the arthrospores, the infectious agent of coccidiotomycosis, is in dust. And so when you get earthquakes, this dust that comes up, you breathe it in, you end up with the disease. I was there when that, when that actual earthquake, I was doing a, uh, a board review. Got shook right out of my bed, actually, 5 in the morning. I remember it clearly. And in my, thousands of people got coccidiotomycosis. So the boards took that and made a board question out of it. Here's your second coxie question. You got a guy that's an Indian artifact uh, 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 explorer. In the Sonoran Desert, so you had to know that the Sonoran Desert is in South is in Arizona. And he was a cave explorer, so that kind of threw people off and said, Cave, Histo. Wrong, wrong. Histo's in the Midwest, not the Southwest. Okay? And developed a non productive cough. Okay? Answer, coccidiotomycosis. Lots of people put Histo because it said cave. It's too dry in the Southwest for Histo to live in. All right, so this is coccidiotomycosis, spherical endospores. Now, uh, this is cryptococcus. Okay, what does that mean? Pigeon. All right. Cryptococcus kind of looks like Mickey Mouse ears. They notice that the, uh, the uh, yeast forms are narrow-based bud yeast forms. They kind of have this Mickey Mouse appearance. So, uh, cryptococcus pigeons. Now, what are some clever ones on that that the board said? That a New York executive, it said, that had pigeons roosting on its on the uh, on the uh, air conditioner, and the executive developed a non-productive cough. They said, "What was it?" The answer: cryptococcus. Then they said that uh, a painter, uh, painters that were painting the Brooklyn Bridge, this was actually in the boards, uh, developed a respiratory infection. Now, when I heard that they said what the students said, they said that I said, "That's not fair," and I said, "Why?" I said, "Because pigeons and starlings roost on bridges." He said, but they didn't ask that, Dr. Goyan. I said, oh, what did they ask? How would you treat it? That's what they asked. And so it was either histo or crypto. It didn't matter which one it is. How do you treat each one? Actino, actinomycin. That's right. That was the answer. They could also do it and just leave out one or the other. In other words, they could put crypto in it, leave out histo, or put histo in it, and put out crypto. Because bridges are famous roosting sites for both starlings and pigeons. Are these clever questions? Very, very clever questions. This picture is on boards, guys. Better look at it. This is an oil. This is an oil-powered. Wait a minute. What's happening? The time here. So we'll just do this now, Via. This is an oil-powered uh, or oil magnification. This is an alveolar macrophage, and these are the yeast forms of histoplasmosis. They're the only systemic fungus that has yeasts 
uh, phagocytosis by macrophages. Okay, right here. Okay. We'll finish this off tomorrow. We'll do also um, GI and liver tomorrow. This is a slide that I left out because I, I put it in my my review slide uh, portion of my uh, whatever it is. This is rheumatic fever. Okay, you can see it pretty much looks very very similar to morantic vegetation uh, because of the fact that it what goes along the lines of closure of the valve. So you would abs actually absolutely need history to be able to say, well, this is rheumatic fever versus morantic vegetation from some colon cancer or something like that. So it looks exactly the same. There's no difference at all. This is fibrinoid necrosis, as is the necrosis of uh, all immunologic diseases. Okay? So let's uh, continue on with our respiratory. We left off with this slide. This is an alveolar macrophage that's phagocytosed uh, yeasts. This is the nucleus, guys. That's not the yeast. Those are the yeasts. Okay? And as I said, it's the only uh, systemic fungus, kind of today, my mouth is dry. It's the only uh, systemic fungus that has um, um, yeast forms, phagocytose by macrophages. So this is very unique to histoplasmosis. Remember, we think about spelunkering. What's spelunkering? Cave exploration, because what's in caves? Bats. Ooh. Okay, and then we have those little blackbirds out there. What do they call them? Starlings. What's pigeons? Cryptococcus. Cryptococcus. Very good. You guys, that's amazing. You haven't forgotten. <laughs> this is very good. That's all I have to say on histoplasmosis. Okay, this is broad-based bud. Broad-based bud. Broad-based bud. That's a broad-based bud. Blasto. It's all bees. Blasto has broad-based bud. <laughs> Blasto has broad-based bud. Got it? This exact picture is on boards. Okay, so it's got a broad base to the bud as opposed to cryptococcus where it's very, very constricted. It's just kind of like, like a little point there. Whereas blasto is broad-based. Okay. Why they think that's important, I don't know. I've never seen a case of it, but they, they think it's important, so you've got to play the game. Uh, aspergillus has got three different diseases that you must know. One is it loves to inhabit abandoned TB cavities, and they call that a fungus ball or an aspergilloma, a very common cause of massive hemoptysis. So you can have this right up or left upper lobe cavitary lesion, and aspergillus just loves to live in it. That's called the fungus ball. Okay, that's one manifestation. Two, it's a vessel invader. So it can invade the vessels in the lung and then produce thrombosis and infarction of those vessels. So they're vessel invaders. Two. Three, you can have allergies to the moles. Um, so it can produce extrinsic asthma, type 1 hypersensitivity. So it has three different manifestations from fungus ball, invasive uh, vascular disease producing uh, hemorrhagic infarctions in the lung, uh, to flannel asthma. Okay, this is the way they look, guys. You should know this. Uh, hopefully, you microbiology people, I never really asked, do they? They show pictures of infectious disease. They show you this? Huh? Should have. If they didn't, get some boards. This is called a corona. Okay, kind of looks like a crown. There it is. Either that or you put your finger in a 220 socket and that's your hair going up. Okay, that could be too. <laughs> that's the one I like, kind of. Notice it's septate. Okay, so it's very, very characteristic. Mucormycosis is non-septate and has wide angles. 
Aspergillus has narrow angles in its budding and has these coronas, coronas, aspergillus. Pneumocystis used to be under the protozoal classification, is now considered a fungus. Did they tell you that? But they still have it under protozoa. Because that actually just changed over the last maybe two years. In fact, one of the guys in my uh, school is uh, a parasitologist, one of the ones that found that out. So it's actually a fungus, because it has more things in its cell wall that look like a fungus than a protozoa. Uh, better look at this, because this is a very common picture on boards. Of course, you mainly associate this with uh, HIV, and it is the first uh, AIDS-defining lesion. It's the most common AIDS-defining lesion. As soon as that helper T-cell counts 200, it seems to be there. It used to be the most common cause of death in AIDS, but it no longer is. It's because as soon as you hit uh, a CD4 count of 200, you automatically prophylactically put you on trimethorphan sulfamethoxazole so you don't get it. Anybody know the other uh, disease that you prevent by, by preventing um, pneumocystis, what other disease do you prevent? Toxoplasmosis. So you kind of get two for one with that. Okay. Remember, toxoplasmosis is the most common cause of a space-occupying lesion in the brain in a patient with AIDS. Always asked. So what it looks like, this is a silver stain. And we use silver stain for a number of things already, haven't we? Bartonella henslei, vascular angiomatosis, remember? Legionella. You can't really see Legionella with gram stains, so they use a silver stain. It's called Dieterle silver stain. Uh, and we have here pneumocystis carini. These are the cysts of pneumocystis carini. You can only see them with silver stain. They kind of look like ping pong balls, okay? This one's been crushed, but they kind of have that ping pong ball look. And these are the cysts of pneumocystis carini. This is the way it looks in the alveoli. You can see this is this uh, kind of foamy, bubbly uh, alveolar infiltrate. These patients have incredible dyspnea, tachypnea. When you do a chest x-ray, it's all white out because of all this, uh, this uh, uh, involvement of the alveoli. Pneumocystis carini. By the way, it's not just in the lungs. You can see pneumocystis carini in any organ you want. Its notoriety is in the lung, but you can see it in lymph nodes and HIV-positive people and other areas. So it's not just lungs. Playoffs. This is the upper lobe of lung. Playoffs. TB. Okay, so you got a cavitary lesion, primary reactivation. Reactivation. Primary TB is the lower part of the upper lobe or the upper part of the lower lobe. So it's kind of in the middle section and right out near the pleura. That's primary TB. They have a gone focus and a gone complex. Okay, most people recover from that and then if you get uh, immunocompromised or whatever, you get reactivation of that, then it usually goes into the apex and produces a cavitary lesion. There is no gone focus, there is no gone complex in reactivation TB. That's only primary TB. Boy, do we, we have, boy, do we have people. The ADDers are just having a blast. You should have seen how many eyes were on you. It was about maybe a hundred. <laughs> That's two per person. Okay. So that means 50 times two, about 50 ADDers in here. Now, lest you uh, be confused on this thing, there are other things that can cavitate in the upper lobes. Which systemic fungus is kind of like the TB of the lung? Histoplasmosis. So this could have been histo. Okay? Which cancer can cavitate in the lungs? Explain so far as known in the lung. What bacteria that has a big mucus wall around it can also produce cavitation in the upper lobe? 
Klebsiella pneumoniae. So many, many things can cavitate. So you can't say unequivocally that's TB. You would have to do, uh, you know, stains, you know, your acid fast. And by the way, what is an acid fast stain staining? Mycolic acid, that's another board question. Okay, so all that cavitates in the upper lobe is not necessarily TB. This happens to be TB, though. Oh, boy, they're really getting into the uh, foreign body stuff and where it goes in the lung. What I'm going to tell you here is correct. If you heard anything else from anybody else, it's wrong, because I have studied this thing big time with an anatomist, okay? And there's a lot of discrepancies in the literature on what goes where and what different positions. What I'm telling you here is absolutely correct, no doubt about it. Okay, went to an expert anatomist on bronchopulmonary segments, and we moved that sucker all the way around, and, uh, uh, you know, the little models, this is correct. The Germans are right. Okay, I went to German anatomy books, and they were the only ones that were correct on this. If you are standing or sitting up, okay, it's going to go right here. That's the posterior basal segment of the right lower lobe. So it's the most posterior segment of the right lower lobe. That's where it goes, just like, just like that. If you are lying down, which is the most common one where you can aspirate things, you go right here. You go to the, uh, the little segment right above the posterior base. That's called the superior segment to the right lower lobe. Just like walking in a manhole, boom, right down there. If you're lying on your right side, you go either of two places. You can go to your middle lobe, which is J, and this is the only one that's upper lobe. <clears throat> or it can go to the posterior segment of the right upper lobe. Okay, that's if you're lying down on your right. If you're lying down on your left and you aspirate, it'll go to the lingula. Okay? So, sitting, standing, where does it go? Postural basal segment, yeah, you give me the, the letters. K, okay, that's the postural basal segment, uh, right lower lobe. You're lying on your back, where will it go? I, what is that called? Superior segment. You're lying on your right side, two answers. J, H. Very good. Got it. Now you ask it. So that gets in the concept of abscesses in the lung. The most common cause of an abscess is aspiration of oral pharyngeal material. So we see this commonly in street people that don't have good dentition, and they might be drunk, and they, you know, fall down like that, and a lot of oral pharyngeal material can get aspirated. Okay, and that's who you usually see this in. So having said that, we know that oral pharyngeal material has aerobes and anaerobes, and so it's very putrid. It's incredibly uh, stenchy because you have mixed aerobe, anaerobes. You've got fusobacterium in there, all kinds of horrible uh, grand, uh, 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 anaerobes. You've got uh, Bacteroides melanogenicus, all kinds of horrible things are in there. So it's a mixture. If I told you this is uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, right lung, and this was the uh, upper lobe, and this was the lower lobe, I want you to tell me what causes abscess. They were lying down on their right side because this is the upper lobe and there's a lesion in the posterior segment, guys. There you go. Okay. Now, you can get abscesses in the lung also, of course, from just plain pneumonia. And Staph aureus is famous for that. Klebsiella is famous for that. But not near as common as aspiration. Okay, so that's one you want to remember, aspiration. You do chest x-rays, you see fluid cavities uh, in, the, uh, in the lung. We've already discussed pulmonary embolus uh, to a certain point. There's two kinds of emboli that you can throw. You can throw little tiny ones, okay, that produce those wedge-shaped hemorrhagic infarctions, or it can produce, uh, chip off large ones. This is a large one. 
This was on board this picture. Okay? What's this? It's a bronchus, guys. It's been opened because you can see the linear lines there. You can see the cartilage. Okay? That's a vessel. What's in there? An embolus. Okay. Now, here's something where all of the pathology literature is wrong on right now, including Robbins, because they don't read the medical literature. And that is where most pulmonary emboli originate from. Now, all the pathology books say it's a deep venous, uh, uh, the deep veins of the lower leg. That's the most common site for thrombosis. That's correct. But it is not the most common site for embolization. Okay. You can read any surgery book, you read Washington Manual, you read Surgery Washington Manual, you read any other book, Medicine, Cecil's, whatever, okay? The answer is the femoral vein. It's the most common location for embolization. It actually makes sense because venous clots propagate towards the heart. And when you start going and starting in the deep veins of the lower leg and it starts propagating up into the femoral vein, that's a larger caliber vessel, so it's more likely to chip off. So the femoral vein is the most common site for embolization to the lung. The deep veins of the lower leg is the most common site from, for where deep venous thrombosis begins. But it's when it gets into the femoral vein that it's dangerous for embolization. Okay. That's been, that's been true for the last three years, guys. I don't know where the pathology books are going. They must not be reading that kind of literature. So small ones produce a hemorrhagic infarct. That is if you have underlying lung disease. If I had a small little embolus, I probably wouldn't infarct because I have normal lungs. But if you have pre-existing disease in your lungs and you throw off a small embolus, you will infarct. In fact, 85% of the time, a little emb a little thromba, a little embolus will not produce an infarction. 15% of the time it will, and it usually be in those that have pre-existing lung disease, like smokers, for example. The other type of embolus is called a saddle embolus. That's huge, huge, huge. It's probably from way up here in the ileal femoral area. And it blocks off the orifices of the pulmonary vessels, pulmonary arteries. You knock off at least three out of the five orifices of the pulmonary vessels, you're dead in a millisecond. It's kind of like, oh, that's it. Okay. So there's no infarction because you don't have enough time to infarct. Uh, it basically produces acute right heart strain and immediate death. And this is an example of a saddle embolus, a huge, huge embolus that not only probably blocked this vessel off, but probably other ones as well. I mean, that is a boom, just like that, that'll kill you. Okay. The uh, um, screening test of choice initially is a ventilation perfusion scan, okay? I know that uh, many of you come from maybe some big shot places and they say spiral CT is the way to go. Not yet, it ain't. And by the way, it really hasn't proven out to be all that good anyway. The answer is ventilation perfusion skin. That's the screening test of choice. Okay? And so you'll have ventilation to the lung, but you won't have perfusion. It's just a radio, uh, radioactive uh, radionuclei type of scan. No problem at all. The confirmatory test is a pulmonary angiogram. Okay? So that's what you need to know about that. Let's deal with restrictive obstructive lung disease. We'll do a quick review of what you, what Dr. Passel taught you in terms of pulmonary function. We've come across this term restrictive before, haven't we? We came across it in terms of restrictive cardiomyopathy. And basically what it means is something's restricting it from filling. So we can have restriction of filling of the heart, restrictive cardiomyopathy with blood, 
or restriction and filling up the lungs with air. We have two terms that Passel taught you. Compliance is a filling term and elasticity is an expiration term. So compliance means inspiration term, filling up the lungs with air. Elasticity is an expiration term, the recoil of the lung. All right, now in restrictive lung disease, I want you to picture a hot water bottle. You know, little big, thick rubber things that you put hot water in, okay? Make believe that's what restrictive lung disease is, okay? Big, thick, rubber type of thing. And, and so you try to blow that up. Would you blow that up easy like a balloon? Oh, no. Okay, so in other words, compliance is decreased in restrictive lung disease. It's hard to fill the lung up with air. So what's preventing it from filling up? Fibrosis, interstitial fibrosis most commonly. Okay, but if you get that, that hot water bottle thing blown up with air and you let the air out, elasticity, what's the elasticity? Increase. So compliance is decreased, you can't fill it up, but once you do fill it up, it comes out quickly. Elasticity increases, is that correct? So if I was someone with sarcoid and they, you asked me to take a deep breath, I'd do something like this. Let it out. Decrease, I couldn't get all of it in because I, I'm something restricting it from filling, fibrosis, but I can get it out fast. So obviously, all volumes and capacities are equally decreased. So total lung capacity, residual volume, tidal volume, everything's decreased. Okay? And then when you do the FEV one second, force vital capacity ratio, you can do it on a spirometer. He has the person take a deep breath. So then here's Joe with sarcoid. Breathe in, breathe, takes his deep breath. Okay, gets it in. Okay, let it out, Joe. Okay. So what's the forced expiratory volume one second? That's the amount that you got out in one second. Okay, it's decreased. Normal is four liters. Um, patients with sarcoid restricted usually have around three. So it's decreased. But what's the forced, uh, the forced vital capacity? That's the total amount that you got out after a deep inspiration. Well, what do you think that turns out to be in restrictive lung disease? It uh, actually oftentimes is the same as the FBV one second because of the increased in elasticity. So a lot of times if it's the same, it's three liters. You got it all out in one second. So when you do a ratio of FBV one second to force vital capacity, it's high. It's increased. It's higher. The normal force vital capacity is five liters. So normally it's Four over five equals 80%. But in restrictive lung disease, it's higher than that because the elasticity is increased. The force vital capacity, how much you can get out totally, is the same as the FDV one second because you get it out so fast. Okay. So that's very, very simple pulmonary function stuff. Not hard at all. Okay. What are some of the examples of restrictive lung disease? Well, the first group are called pneumoconioses. Those are airborne, dust-borne diseases. New York is famous for that. Okay. New York's famous. Big cities, L.A., famous for dust-borne diseases. We call those pneumoconioses. The ones that you need to know are co-workers, silicosis, and asbestosis. Those three are the ones you need to know. Co-workers is co-workers, you know. It's someone like West Virginia, Pennsylvania. They get anthracotic pigment that sets up a fibrous reaction in their lung. Voila, they end up with restrictive lung disease. They have an increased incidence of TB, but not cancer. End of discussion. Then we have silicosis. Okay, those are the people that usually are sandblasters. They get the graffiti off of things. Or work in foundries that deal with rock and quartz. 
and breaking them down and that possibility of bringing in the dust, breathing in the dust from those things, silicosis. Okay, there you get these big nodules in the lung, which really are as hard as rocks, literally, because there's quartz in them. And it looks like metastatic disease in the lung. You have huge nodules in the lung, as hard as rocks, because there's quartz, silica dioxide, that sand, is in your lungs. Very, very fibrous. Again, an increased incidence of TB, but not cancer. Now, if you happen to have rheumatoid arthritis, and also had one of these pneumoconiosis, co-worker silicosis. You have a potential for a syndrome, which is called Kaplan syndrome, not to be confused with K Kaplan, C Kaplan. And what it is is rheumatoid nodules, the same ones you saw on that extensive surface of the arm that I showed you, they're in the lung. See, rheumatoid arthritis commonly involves the lung with fibrosis all by itself. And it can have rheumatoid nodules in the lung, not just here. That combination, rheumatoid nodules in the lung, plus a pneumoconiosis, co-worker silicosis, even asbestosis, equals Kaplan syndrome. And they like that. They like that. Okay. Now I'm going to show you asbestos. So we get the asbestos discussion done. Got two for one in this slide. Okay. Now, guys will easily recognize asbestos fibers because they look like dumbbells. They are right there. Admittedly, very, very, very small weight dumbbells, but they do look like dumbbells. There's your little thing that you hold with your hand. There's the dumbbells at the end. You know, it's a good analogy because it's a asbestos fiber coated by iron. So it's really a very, very good analogy, dumbbells. Another name for them is ferruginous body. Ferruginous, of course, meaning the iron. So they can be called asbestos bodies, or they can be called ferruginous bodies, whatever you want. But that's iron, coating these things. Now listen real careful on this, guys, real careful. The most common pulmonary lesion associated with asbestos exposure is not cancer. It's a fibrous plaque of the pleura. Okay, it's benign, totally, just well, benign fibrous plaque. So just get a little area of fibrosis on either the visceral or the parietal pleura. That's the most common overall pulmonary lesion associated with asbestos. Not a precursor for mesothelioma, just a little little patch of fibrosis. That's all. Now, the most common cancer, you better listen up, is primary lung cancer. The second most common is mesothelioma. That's a malignancy of the serosal lining of the lungs. Okay, with me so far? Okay. If you are a smoker, and have asbestos exposure, you have a incredibly increased uh, 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 increased chance of getting primary lung cancer. Here's an example of synergism again. Remember, smoking alcohol, those squamous cancers. Here's another one, asbestos and smoker. I mean, we're talking about you are clearly going to get primary lung cancer. There is no relationship of smoking enhancing the or increasing the incidence of mesothelioma. There's no smoking relationship. Now listen careful. Listen careful. Here's the board question. They said they had a roofer who's been a roofer for 25 years and someone that puts on roofing. Okay. Now that doesn't matter. They didn't say asbestos, but you have to know that 25 years ago, all the insulation material had asbestos in it. As you recall, in New York City, that was a big problem when those buildings came down. It was asbestos exposure. And many of those people breathe it in. 
Okay, so they, they're going to have some problems 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the pike because they have massive asbestos exposure, okay, because there's insulation of old buildings. So it's a 25-year-old worker, uh, asbestos, and they said, what would he most likely get? Now, benign pleural plaque was not down there, so you had to deal with cancer. What was the answer? Primary lung cancer, okay. I believe they said he was a non-smoker, okay. They said it was a non-smoker. So 25 years, uh, a roofer, uh, he was a non-smoker. What would he likely get? Answer, primary lung cancer. Let's say he's a smoker. Answer, primary lung cancer. So whether you're a smoker or a non-smoker, what's your answer? Primary lung cancer. Okay. So where's mesothelioma fit into this thing? Well, mesotheliomas take 25 to 30 years to develop. Okay. Lung cancers usually only take maybe 10 years to develop. So what's really the reason why lung cancer is far more common than mesothelioma is you die before you get your mesothelioma. And so they really are have a very, very low incidence. Okay, so whether you're a smoker or a non-smoker, you have asbestos, asbestos exposure, you're more likely to get a primary lung cancer, not mesothelioma. That's the point I want to point out to you. So how do you get this exposure? The two key things, one's roofer more than 25 years, and anyone working in a naval shipyard. And that's what they usually say, you know, shipyard, whatever. That's because all the pipes of the ships are insulated with asbestos. Those are the two, two that you're going to get. Roofer, shipyard, asbestos. Okay, that's it. This mesothelioma looks like uh, the lung was encased with icing. Okay, this is a malignant, highly malignant. Steve McQueen, great actor. Bullet and all those different uh, excellent movies. Um, he was a uh, race car driver way, way back before he was a uh, an actor. And the brake lining, brake lining used to in the old days uh, have um, asbestos in it and no longer have it. So he was exposed to that from changing brake linings. And also the, the headgear that they wore had asbestos in it in those days. So he had a massive exposure to that. He died of a mesothelioma, Steve McQueen. Okay, that's asbestos and the diseases it causes. Okay, the second most common cause of restrictive lung disease is sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis. This is a classic x-ray of sarcoid. What do you think these things right over here are over there? Lymph nodes. In fact, radiologists call them potato nodes. It's so big, the hyalur lymph nodes are so big, they call them potato nodes. Okay, uh, I don't know if you can see this. I, th I think you can. I think you can see a haziness down over here and a little bit of a haziness over here. Can you see that? That's interstitial fibrosis. Okay. Sarcoid is a granulomatous disease that has no relationship whatsoever to infection. No one really knows what causes it. They know that people that live around pine trees seem to have an increase, but whatever. No one knows the cause of it. And it produces granulomas. Of course, non-caseating because this is not in a, a, a systemic fungus or TB. The lungs are always involved. That's the primary target organ. So it'll be some, and also it's more common in blacks. And so they usually use a black person, 35 years of age, who has dyspnea. And I say they maybe throw this chest X-ray up there on the boards, and then you can look at it and see these hyaluronodes nodes and stuff like that. Then they will always throw in something in the face. That's the second most common area it hits. Now, what, what in the area of the face? Well, uveal tract of the eyes, uveitis, will have blurry vision. Inflammation of the uveal tract produces a blurry vision. That's 
very, very common in sarcoid. Or it could involve the salivary glands that get enlarged with lacrimal glands. So something related to the head, head, neck, face area. Eyes, uveitis, salivary glands. Okay? So that's what they usually do. The lung thing and something up here, black person, dyspnea, sarcoid. Okay? Part two, if you're interested, deals with the skin lesions in sarcoid. They're nodular lesions, and they say, what would you, if you biopsied one of them, what would you see? Well, that's a no-brainer, non-caseating granulomas. That was the way they asked it on part two. They don't usually fiddle with that on part one. Now, some other things about this. This is diagnosis of exclusion, guys. You have to rule out anything that causes granulomas. So TB, you know, histo, and all those things. When all that stuff is negative, they have the right clinical presentation, sarcoidosis. Because the treatment's going to be steroids, so you've got to really be sure of your, of your diagnosis. Angiotensin-converting enzymes sky high in these patients because the granulomas are just loaded in it. Hypercalcemia occurs, and very interestingly, very unusual mechanism, the actual, the macrophages in the granulomas, those epithelioid cells, make one alpha hydroxylase. So you should be able to fill in the rest of that. If they're making one alpha hydroxylase, then what is the mechanism of their vitamin of their uh, I said almost said it hypercalcemia, hypervitaminosis D. You're you're second hydroxylating more uh, of the vitamin D, and and therefore you have excess amounts of vitamin D. As you know, vitamin D increases reabsorption of calcium and phosphorus, so hypercalcemia. Okay, sarcoid, very important, guaranteed board question. And uh, it's the most common non-infectious cause of granular cause of granulomatous hepatitis, TB being the most common cause of infectious. So it's big time. And second most common, pneumoconiosis. I don't have a picture of this next thing. We're still restrictive, guys. Farmer's lung, silofillers disease, bisonosis. Those are called hypersensitivity pneumonidides. I like that. Pneumonidides. Nice name. If you're a Pulmonologist might want to name a kid. Hey, pneumonidity over here. <laughs> of course, you want to, you're a pathologist, your kid should be called Frank Necrosis Golion. Right, might give him some notoriety. If you're in dermatology, whitehead, blackhead, that'd be cool. Nephrologist, nephritic, nephrotic, you know, get over here. You've got all kinds of interesting things you can call your kids, depending on your specialty. Of course, it's kind of mean because you're labeling the poor little dudes. Okay, but whatever. Students confuse farmer's lung and silofillers disease, and I can understand why. They're both seen in farmers. So remember one and the other one's the other one. Do you hear what I said? Remember one, the other one's the other one. See, if you try to remember two, guess what you'll do? You'll switch them. So which one do I remember? For me, I like silofillers disease because I know you put things in silos, a closed space, fermentation occurs, fermentation's gas. The gas is nitrogen dioxide. So the board question was, a farmer went in and into a room in his barn and suddenly developed uh, uh, wheezing, okay, and dyspnea, okay? That's because he breathed nitrogen dioxide because of the fermenting thing. That's what I remember. Silofillers is the gas thing because silos, you also know that many times you hear on the news about a silo exploding. Why do you think they exploded? They exploded because of the gas from fermentation. So I remember that one. That means the other one, farmer's lung, is thermophilic actinomycetes. They're out there in their tractor. Dust is coming up, and there's thermophilic actinomycetes that's blown up in the air. It's a mold. They breathe it in, and they end up getting dyspnea and hypersensitivity pneumonitis with eventually ending up with a restrictive lung disease. 
So you remember one and the other one's the other one. I remember on my exam, guys, 1965, Monday morning blues. And that's bisonosis. Those are people that work in textile factories that have cotton, hemp, and linen. Okay? And they get Monday morning blues because they're sick all week. They go home on the weekend, they feel better because they don't have exposure, and they start getting depressed on Sunday about going to work on Monday and being sick again. And so the disease was called Monday morning blues. Of course, we have that all in here too, but we don't work in the textile industry. We just don't like going to work on Monday. Let's just throw it Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday as well. Okay. No, the best day actually is Friday, thinking about Saturday. Okay. Then it starts going downhill from that. So Saturday actually, toss it between Friday and Saturday. I think Saturday for me. I just love Saturday. I can actually sleep all night. Friday night I can sleep all night. Because I don't wake up thinking about what I'm going to lecture on. I don't have to think. <laughs> Saturday is a day of non-thinking. <laughs> no thinking at all. Just go out with the grandchildren and just have a blast and building them up into being power people. Getting them ready for survival techniques. You should see them. They're so cute. And I go, <laughs> so cute. Imagine these little... I say, it is so cute. I say, what are you doing? Kung fu. <laughs> Kung Fu, you think you're going to hurt Poppy? Yes. Let me see. <laughs> what a kick. You know, then they think that's so funny. They laugh like mad. They think that's the funniest thing in the world. Of course, they know it's not true. <laughs> but they make believe. Okay. This is called bisonosis. When you have uh, the uh, worker in a textile uh, factory, that's they always tell you that. And then they get, uh, they have problems with dysmia. That's uh, bisonosis, B-Y-S, whatever. You can spell bisonosis yourself. There's a thing called manurosis, too, and you can imagine what that is. It's a hypersensitivity reaction to people who work with manure. They got crap in their lungs, literally. That was a joke. Some of you believed it. Some of you believed it. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Okay. See, raise his hand. You're the only one in the whole room that raised your hand. It's because you're the only honest one. All right. Those are the hypersensitivity diseases, guys, and also restrictive. Remember, good pasture syndrome begins in the lungs with, uh, with uh, a restrictive type of lung disease with a coughing up of uh, hemoptysis, you know, coughing up blood, and then ends up very shortly with the renal disease. So it starts in the lung and ends in the, uh, in the kidneys. Obstructive lung disease. Let's deal with our, our compliance and elasticity concept. <clears throat> Remember, in obstructive lung disease, you have no problem in getting air in, you have problem in getting it out. Why do you have not have a problem in getting it in? The answer is because your elastic tissue supports destroyed. So it's very easy to fill up your lungs. But because your elastic tissue support is destroyed, it's very hard to get it out because it collapses on expiration. So you get air in, but you can't get air out. So in a patient with obstructive lung disease, they breathe in, no problem. But they have problem getting it out. Very hard. Okay? So something's left over in the lung. If you can't get all the air out, then that must mean residual volume's increased. Is that correct? Isn't it true that whenever something's left over, don't you say that's the residual? 
Okay, so if you can't get all the air out of your lung on each breath, and then you're obviously your residual volume increases, which means then that total lung capacity is going to increase, which means then that diaphragms are going to go down as the lungs, since they're overinflated, and the AP diameter is going to go out. So that increased AP diameter depressed diaphragms. Agreed? Well, it's only a certain amount of, of uh, expansion that your chest can undergo. And so then eventually, as you continue to, to trap the air in your residual volume, then you start compressing down and, uh, each of the other volumes that are remaining. So your tidal volume starts decreasing. Your vital capacity decreases. Because as your residual volume is increasing, it's just compacting those other volumes, and they begin decreasing. So you have decreased tidal volume. That's what you're doing right now, that normal breathing in and out. Your vital capacity decreases. So tidal lung capacity, residual volume, Increase, all the other ones decrease. When you ask these students to take a deep breath and blow it all out, <clears throat> on a spirometer, what's FEV one second? Very low. They can get very little out because they're having trouble getting out. Usually it's around one liter versus four. In other words, you get, you get, you have a much better FEV one second with restrictive lung disease because of the fact that you can get air in at least. So it may be one liter. What's the fourth vital capacity, the total amount that they can get out? Three liters, maybe, versus five. Now, when you do a ratio of FEV one second and fourth vital capacity now, you can see it's way, way down there, clearly distinguishing restrictive from obstructive lung disease. Those of you taking part two, the FEV one second uh, fourth vital capacity are the best things to evaluate in the patient before they go into surgery if they have some underlying lung disease because it really uh, uh, gives a, a really good idea about how they're going to do after surgery, whether they're going to be on, on a respirator, you know, for long periods of time. So those are very important tests that really give a good idea of how well you're doing lung-wise. So those are your uh, PFTs, we call them pulmonary function tests. There are four types of, uh, of obstructive lung disease, bronchitis, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, bronchiectasis, and asthma. These are all considered obstructive lung diseases. The ones associated with smoking are bronchitis and emphysema, those two. The other ones, not necessarily. Chronic bronchitis is a clinical diagnosis. And if a patient has productive cough for three months out of a year, for two consecutive years, they have chronic bronchitis. So it's purely clinical. Where, however, is the disease? Actually, it's in the terminal bronchioles. So remember, you have mainstem bronchus, you have segmental bronchi, terminal bronchioles, respiratory bronchioles, alveolar ducts, alveoli. The moment you hit terminal bronchial, that's small airway. And our friend Paso taught you that it's all turbulent air up to the terminal bronchioles, because from that point on, there's parallel branching that occurs of your airways. Now, parallel means kind of like you ever see the, you know, uh, tennis contest. You see the names on these on these lines. That's kind of how like your airways are. They're all in parallel to each other, and so you can see that turbulent air hits those small airways, and it hits this mass of cross cross-sectional air with this multiple parallel branching of those small airways, what might have been initially turbulent, all of a sudden, now it's laminar airflow. Actually, by the time you hit your respiratory unit, it's actually not moving the air. Okay. 
Small, most small airway diseases in the terminal bronchial, guys. Inflammation of the terminal bronchial. That cause produces wheezing. And that's the, actually the area for chronic bronchitis. It's the same area as for asthma and for bronchiolitis. It's the same area. So chronic bronchitis hits the same area as asthma does, the terminal bronchial. Of course, more proximal to that, you're getting mucous gland hyperplasia, goblet cell hyperplasia. There's lots of crap. You know, that's coming up, and that's the productive part of the cough. But the actual area of obstruction is the terminal bronchial. You have goblet cell metaplasia there. You've got these mucus plugs in there. Can you just picture this, guys? You have one mucus plug and one terminal bronchial. You are affecting a major cross-sectional area of lung because of all the parallel branches that derive from that thing. They can't, they've had CO2 in them, okay? And they're trying to get air past that mucus plug, and they can't. They can't. So the ventilation perfusion mismatch is incredible. The wonder why they're called blue bloaters. The blue means they're cyanotic. They can't get rid of CO2 because they've got stupid mucus plugs in the terminal bronchioles. Bad place to have them. You can't get rid of CO2. Okay, that's that. Emphysema is not in the terminal bronchioles. Emphysema is in your respiratory unit. That's what it has to say your respiratory unit was. And by the way, what does it mean? Respiratory unit is where you can actually exchange gas. You cannot exchange gas in the terminal bronchial. In fact, another name for it is non-respiratory bronchial. You cannot exchange gas there. But it does have notoriety that it is the primary place for small airway disease and the origin of expiratory wheezing. So it has that notoriety. But it's not where gas exchange occurs. That's your respiratory bronchial, respiratory uh, alveolar duct, and alveoli. Okay. I'll show you that in a second. What do you see? The next ray? That's right. See anything abnormal about it? It's hard seeing a heart, isn't it? What about those diaphragms? Are they low enough for you? Probably at the level of the umbilicus. <laughs> okay, a little increased AP diameter here, what do you think? Okay, it's this classic obstructive lung disease, x-ray. Has it been on boards? Oh, yeah. It's classic, it's got great notoriety all, all its own. <laughs> okay, this exact picture's been on so many boards, uh, so many examinations. You clearly see that you have an obstructive pattern here. You're having problem getting air out because that's why the diaphragms are down and your AP diameter is increased. Now, a little dude can have this, a little three-month-old can have this if they had bronchiolitis due to respiratory syncytial virus. Or a newborn, maybe maybe one or two weeks old, with chlamydia trachomatis pneumonia could look like this. Okay. Because you're trapping air. Okay, so here's your, uh, here's a nice diagram for you. Here's the terminal bronchial, and this is the beginning of your respiratory unit. Respiratory bronchial, alveolar duct and alveoli. This is where gas exchange can occur. You only need to know two emphysemas. You need to know central lobular and panacenar. Those are the two that you need to know, central lobular and panacenar emphysema. Okay. Now, before we start going into these things, remember, chronic bronchitis affects what part of the airway? This. Emphysema affects what part of the airway? This. So it's more distal to where chronic bronchitis is. So that when you have emphysema with lots of the inflammation associated with it, you not only destroy that respiratory unit, but you also destroy the vasculature associated with it. 
So you have an even loss of ventilation and perfusion. So you're not going to have retention of CO2 in these patients. When you have uh, uh, a, a problem mucus plugs in the terminal bronchial, which is way more proximal, and you affect the great cross-sectional area of lung, there's going to be a problem there. But when you're out this far, and you're also destroying the vessels that go along with this, you don't have an increase in CO2. That's why they call pink puffers. In fact, many of them have respiratory alkalosis. But that, 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 that concept and that distinction is going out the window right now because most people have combinations of the two. I just wanted to just make sure you understood the pathophys of this. Now, central lobular emphysema is the one most often associated with smoking, and it's in the upper lobes. So it's an upper lobe emphysema, and the primary portion of the respiratory unit that is destroyed is the respiratory bronchial, the very first thing the smoke hits. Okay, and what happens is neutrophils um, will damage this. And the reason for this is, is that all people that smoke, all people that smoke, have more neutrophils in their lungs. Smoke is chemotactic to neutrophils. Okay, that's not some, that's like 5%, that's not 3, you know, you know 15%, it's 100%. All smokers have increased neutrophils in their lungs. That's not cool. But here's the worst part. Do you know what alpha-1 antitrypsin does? Do you know what its real purpose is? It's an anti-elastase. Its only purpose in life is to destroy elastases produced by neutrophils. That's its function. If you're a smoker, that is denatured. So you really have acquired alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency as well. You don't have adequate amounts of alpha-1 antitrypsin, and you have too many neutrophils in your lung. Bad combination. And so that's why neutrophils have absolutely no problem in destroying the elastic tissue support of the respiratory bronchial. So here's what happens, guys. You breathe air in, no problem. But you try to get it out, and all of a sudden the air goes into this, there's no elastic tissue support, it just expands like that, kind of catches it, it doesn't go anywhere. That's why you form those big little bleds up there, those big cystic, you know, those big uh, areas, those uh, cystic areas on the lung. It's just trapped air in there because there's no elastic tissue, so when it try to get by, that's what you see it expanding like this. That's central lobular emphysema, upper lobes. Now, in panacinar emphysema, remember pan means the same thing at met with pancytopenia. You know, all the cells decreased, red blood cells, platelets, neutrophils. Panacinar means the entire respiratory unit's destroyed because it's associated with no alpha-1 antitrypsin at all, alpha-1 antitrypsin at all. It's a genetic disease, autosomal recessive. The liver doesn't make it. That's the problem. doesn't make it. And so at a very early age, you develop destruction of your entire respiratory unit in your lower lobes. So this is a lower lobe emphysema. And so you can see respiratory uh, bronchioles was knocked out, alveolar ducts are knocked out, and alveoli are knocked out. So when the patient breathes in, air goes in, and they can't get it out because this entire respiratory unit catches it. <laughs> That's in your lower lobes. Well, some of you are pretty intuitive. And you're getting the idea that because I said that smokers have, in a sense, an acquired alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, that they could probably get an element of pinacinar emphysema as well in the lower lobes. Is that correct? You're right. So smokers can get two emphysemas. They can get the central lobular emphysema in the upper lobes, which knocks off the respiratory bronchial, and in the lower lobes, 
they get a panacinar type of pattern to their disease. So it's upper and lower lows, but two different types of emphysema. <clears throat> Guys, this is the pleura. What's this? It's a bronchi, guys. Should bronchi go all the way to your pleura? When you do a chest x-ray, do you see bronchi extending to the, to the pleura? It's bronchiectasis. When you see bronchi going out further than just a little bit beyond the hilum, you start seeing bronchi continuing on as bronchiectasis. Mechanism, infection, destruction of the elastic tissue support, dilatation of the airways. Segmental bronchi, bronchi. What happens then? They fill up with pus. See all this kind of liquid kind of crap here? It's all pus. So classically on boards, they'll say someone has a, uh, a productive cough of cupfuls. Not just a little bit, not just tablespoon. Cupfuls of pus. Because they are trapped. It's pus. Now, in this country, cystic fibrosis is the most common cause of this disease. In third world countries, it's TB. It's the most common. If you have any idea or know of anybody that has a child with cystic fibrosis, you know that the parent's job each day is a horror show. Because they have to put their little dudes into all different kinds of positions to drain out the pus in their bronchiectasis. And you can imagine a little four-year-old, you know, over the edge of the bed with this big pan down there seeing all this pus come out from their bronchi. And they have to do this a couple times a day. Very bad. Okay, let's break. All right, so we said that in this country, cystic fibrosis is the most common cause of bronchiectasis. And TB in, in third world countries. There are many other causes of bronchiectasis, and one that they like, we've already mentioned, that's the immotile cilia syndrome. Another name is Cartagener syndrome. Remember the 9 plus 2 configuration in terms of microtubules and cilia? The problem with immotile cilia syndrome is an absent dynine arm. And those 9 that are on the outside of the cilia, those 9 uh, microtubules out there, they have little arms off of them. They should have little arms off of them that kind of keep them together. Those are missing. And so when those little arms are missing, those dynine arms, the cilia can't move. And so those places that have cilia that aren't moving are going to be affected. So those be sinuses. And so that's why sinusitis is a problem. And bronchiectasis, because there is cilia, you know, pseudostratified columnar epithelium that has cilia. So that's affected. Uh, males and females are infertile. Mainly because the tail of the sperm is a modified cilia. So the head is willing, but the tail is weak. Did you get that? Do you want to move? This is a sperm. Can you move? Why? Because the tail is a modified cilia, and it can't. So I, so, so I was saying, the head is willing, but the tail is weak. It doesn't move. Okay, so that means you're infertile. I thought it was pretty clever. Most of you didn't get that, or you didn't think it was funny. I don't know what the other was, but I thought that was pretty clever, actually. Uh, women are infertile, too. Why? Why should you be infertile? Because your fallopian tube needs cilia to carry that fertilized egg down. Okay, so it doesn't move, you're infertile. Okay, so bronchiectasis, 
infertility, male-female, sinusitis, and then organs being located on the opposite side, dextral cardia. Remember, that's not complete transposition. It's just a normal heart on the other side. And sometimes even organ shifts is part of that syndrome. Famous question because it gets into histology. It's a histology correlation. Okay, before we do cancer, um, in terms of asthma, bronchial asthma, remember it can be extrinsic, which is type 1 hypersensitivity, and intrinsic, which involves uh, chemicals oftentimes. Many times people in the workplace uh, have get, get wheezing when they come in contact with a certain chemical. We already know one cause of that would be triad asthma related to taking non-steroidals. Okay, that's an example. A lot of people, a lot, especially athletes, when they run, develop wheezing, exertional asthma. That's where chromium sodium is the absolute drug of choice for that, for uh, exertional asthma, you know, that type of thing. Sometimes cold temperatures, you know, cause asthma. Those things have absolutely nothing to do with type 1 hypersensitivity. The wheezing is due to inflammation in the terminal bronchioles. Okay, except it's going to be from a different cause. It's not going to be from smoking irritating it and causing goblet cell metaplasia. It's coming because of factors like LTC4, D4, and E4, okay, and, and, and prostaglandins that are causing inflammation are producing the inflammation and narrowing of those airways, okay, and ending up with the wheezing, okay? That's pretty much it. Cancer. Okay, I remember on my exam, but honestly, I'm not kidding you. I remember on my exam, it wasn't this picture, it was a schematic. And the schematic had this over here, and they labeled that A, and had this over here, and they labeled that B, and then they asked all kinds of questions about cancer. Because what it's getting at is peripherally located versus centrally located cancers of the lung. Okay. The centrally located cancers of the lungs are the ones that have the highest association with smoking, and they would include squamous cell carcinoma and small cell. So those are generally centrally located, which means main stem bronchus types of locations. Adenocarcinomas, which are the more common cancer now, primary cancer, they beat squamous out about two or three years ago. It's kind of like 40% uh, uh, versus 30%. You know, it's very, very close, but, but adenocarcinoma is a little bit more common. They have a tendency of being more peripheral so that, as opposed to uh, centrally. Want to know why it shifted? This will just blow you away. It shifted to the periphery because of filters in cigarettes. When the cigarette industry put filters in cigarettes, it took out the large carcinogens but allowed the small ones to go through. So they were able now not to be trapped in the main stem, they were getting trapped in the periphery. So filters in cigarettes is responsible for the increase in uh, peripherally located adenocarcinoma. Isn't that fascinating? I got that from a, a, a pulmonologist uh, from his literature. Okay, so you can't win with the cigarette industry in any way, shape, or form. Okay, everything they say that they're going to do that's going to help you, you know, not get bad things is actually making it worse. Okay, so that's that. So centrally located squamous cell, small cell carcinoma, squamous more common in small cell, peripherally located adenocarcinomas. But remember, there's at least three, maybe four different types of adenocarcinoma. One obviously does have a smoking relationship. Uh, but actually, the other three don't, and they include things like bronchiolo alveolar carcinoma, nothing to do with uh, with smoking at all. Uh, large cell carcinoma, the lung tends to be adenocarcinoma. Scar cancers tend to be adenocarcinoma. They have real no relationship to smoking at all. But obviously, the one that is producing cancer does, because it is related to smoking. Okay. 
going to show you some cytology, guys, because they think that uh, all second-year medical students should know what squamous cancer looks like with a pap smear. Now, a lot of people think that the papanicolau stain is only done for cervical smears. No, no, no. It's the famous stain that we use on all cytologic specimens for wh from whatever organ we get it from. And the beauty of the stain is that it stains keratin bright red. So please look at this slide, please. Okay, this lets I give you a history. It's a patient, the smoker. He's got a centrally located mass. And this is a, uh, a um, sputum sample with stain with Papanicolaou stain. Is that red, yes or no? Yes or no? Okay, squamous cell carcinoma. That's all you need to know. Okay, if I said this is a cervical pap smear from a woman that's 40 years of age, what's the answer? Squamous cell carcinoma. It's the, uh, in the stain, carrot in the stain, bright red. Bright red. So it's very easy. You're not colorblind. You will never miss this. Okay? It's very, very straightforward. Bright red cells, cytoplasm, squamous, because it's keratin. And I don't expect you to be expert cytologists and know, well, that's an irregular hyperchromatic. No, 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 no. They're not interested uh, in making you pathologists. Okay? They just want you to have this that understanding that a papanicolaou stain stains keratin a bright red. And that's going to be to your advantage. This, uh, look at the bottom one over here. And here we can see these small cells that kind of look like lymphocytes, don't they? Okay? That's why it's called small cell carcinoma, because they're small cells. And it's, it's a little bit more difficult, actually, to, to diagnose because of the fact that it's sometimes hard to tell them from lymphocytes. Okay? But these are malignant cells. Small cell cancers are the most malignant cancers of the lung. And no doubt about that. In fact, you don't do surgery on them. You just do radiation and chemotherapy, and they're going to be dead in three months. You don't do surgery. Whereas the other ones they do, if they fit a certain criteria. So these are the small cell cancers. Remember, these are output tumors with neural secretory granules in them, S100 antigen positive, the whole bit. Okay. They can make ADH, ACTH. A slightly <coughs> less malignant <coughs> type of output tumor that's also in the lung is called a bronchial carcinoid. It's a low-grade malignancy of the same kinds of cells that produce small cell carcinoma. So they can invade, they can even metastasize, they can produce carcinoid syndrome uh, if, they, if they make increased amounts of ser enough uh, uh, serotonin. They don't even have to metastasize to do it, it just goes right into the bloodstream. But it's very uncommon and uh, um, that's all I have to say about it actually. The actual most common cancer of the lung is metastasis, okay? And we're seeing, seeing here a lung, and this is the pleural surface of the lung, and look at all these, all these uh, metastatic nodules in here. We can see a little bit of uh, cancer in here. A lot of this is around bronchi. Some of it's probably in lymphatics. But this is metastatic cancer to lung. If you played odds, what would you say? Breast. Breast is the most common cancer, a cancer of the lung, of the lung. Okay, so metastasis is the most common cancer. Primary adenocarcinoma is the most common primary cancer, followed by squamous and small cell carcinoma. The worst prognosis of all of them, small cell carcinoma. Okay, Horner syndrome, or pancoast or superior sulcus tumor. Okay, these are tumors that are usually in the upper lobe posteriorly. So that's in a posterior mediastinum, high. The use most commonly is called by, caused by squamous cancer in that area. 
And you remember what's happening here is that as the tumor is locally invading into the lower part, the lower trunk of the brachial plexus, so you can get some lower, lower trunk brachial plexus types of findings. But then you also can knock off that superior uh, cervical ganglion. That's in the posterior mediastinum, and so you can end up with Horner syndrome. You're basically knocking off sympathetic activity, and so instead of having your lids up, your lid legs, and I think you can see it's subtle. Admittedly, it's subtle. You can see that the lid is lower on this side than it is that. Uh, you, we, of course, can't tell that he's not sweating. They'll have anhydrosis on that side. And since sympathetic stimulation of the, uh, of the pupil produces medriasis, it dilates the pupil. And the purpose of that is fight or flight. Remember, you want a dilated pupil to make taking as much light as you can. So if you're destroying the sympathetic, then you get not medriasis, you get meiosis, which is not the same thing as the meiosis in germ cells. It's a different meiosis. You get pinpoint pupils. See, I have problems between meiosis and medriasis, which one's dilated, which one isn't. But then some students said, medriasis, D, D, dilate. So I haven't had a problem since. That's the one I remember. Medriasis, D, dilate. That means the other one's the other one. <laughs> works for me, guys. You might think it's crazy, but it actually works. And every student that I, uh, I teach my student that's that right off the bat, boy, I get comments later on and says, you know, that has really, really, really helped me to remember. Just remember one of two things that always confuses me, and the other one's the other one. I remember P anchor, polyautoritis. I mean, C anchor's wagoners. Okay, that, that helps me. I don't, I don't fiddle with the, uh, you may like the fact that you treat it with cyclophosphamide, and that goes with C with wagoners. That's fine. That, that works for you great. That means the other one's the other one. But, okay, but whatever. All right? Okay, you can't really, if you came up here later, you can probably see, I'll show you how the pupil here is about this big. The pupil here is about that big on that side. So this is Horner's syndrome. Pankos tumor, superior sulcus tumor. This is the one they like for the obvious reason, neuroanatomy tie-in. Okay, with the brachial plexus stuff and then the superior uh, cervical ganglion. They like that. Do not confuse it with superior vena cable syndrome. That's just blocking off the superior vena cable. Okay, uh, in terms of mediastinum, uh, things, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. When we do a little muscle, I'll talk about Mycenae gravis, because it does have something to do with the anterior mediastinum, and that is thymoma, and uh, B-cell hyperplasia of the thymus. So we'll, we'll save that for then. Um, otherwise, mediastinal things are worthless. In terms of pleural fluid, you know the difference between an exudate and a, a transudate. Transudate's less than 3 grams, hardly any cells in it. Most common cause of a pleural effusion due to a transidase, heart failure. And then an exudase uh, is a uh, uh, protein greater than 3 grams and has, you know, um, cells in it. Okay, so things like pneumonias, pulmonary infarctions with effusions, those are exudase. So you already knew that. No reason to go through them again. GI.